What is good, everybody? Yo, welcome to the Uncensored Christian Podcast, where we help real people with real problems know the real God. Hey, if you enjoy this message, share this with your friends because the gospel is not meant to be kept to ourselves. And there is a link down below if you would like to give. Your gifts really do help this podcast reach more people all around the world. I hope you enjoy this message. What is popping, everybody? I hope y'all have had yourself a great day, a great week, a great month. We're ready to get into Romans chapter six. We done got through two chapters and I'm glad y'all been following along. Hey, by the time you are listening to this, by the time this episode gets released, me and my wife will have had our second baby. That is so exciting. And we are so happy. But look, so we left off in chapter five, at the end of chapter five, with Paul explaining to the church in Rome, the effects of sin and the power of Jesus to overcome it. He was kind of giving us a um, two different Adams type of situation. He, he explained the first sin of Adam and how that resulted in death, which extended to all human beings. But then he also gave us the, the last Adam, the perfect Adam. Adam, the, the better Adam, which was Jesus Christ. And he explained how the last Adam's effect on the world extended to all people as well. But instead of death being extended to all of mankind, it was eternal life and righteousness. And he's continuing now going into chapter six. He's continuing on the topic of sin. But in this chapter, Paul explains to the churches in Rome that they are no longer enslaved to sin. He's showing them that sin no longer should have a place in their life if they are servants of King Jesus. So we're going to hop into this here. And if you if you noticed for the last episode, when we left off in chapter 5, we didn't leave off at the very end of chapter 5. And there's a reason for that. You know, you would you you would think when you're reading a book that normally a, a chapter break, right? You go from chapter one to chapter two and so on. You would think that the indication of a new chapter would mean that you've reached a new subject or a new thought. But I think that for Romans chapter five and chapter six, I think this chapter marking is a bit off. I don't think I don't think Romans 5 should have quite have ended, or at least Romans 6 should have started off where it did. See, we have to remember that for the original readers and hearers of what Paul wrote, this was a letter. And there, there were no chapter breaks. There were no verses in the letter that we have for Romans. And they would have been tracking on his line of thought coming out of chapter 5. Because... We have to remember that the original texts were not broken into chapters or verses. This happened later by a dude named Stephen Langton at around 1200 AD, and he broke the Bible into chapters. And look, don't get me wrong, this has its uses, right? Some of your Bibles at the beginning of chapters may have a heading for each chapter that kind of summarizes the main idea. And it's so helpful if you're trying to like point someone to a, a specific verse in the Bible, you can be like, yeah. Go to Romans chapter 5, verse 12, instead of just saying, yeah, it's somewhere in that letter of Romans. Good luck. But it also has its downfalls because there are multiple places where the chapter divisions are in the wrong spot. 
And when that happens, if, if we're not reading very carefully, and if we are not paying attention to the line of thought that the that the author is giving us, we can completely miss what's happening when we're reading the Bible. So we have to be careful. And honestly, look, this happens in the very first pages of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, if you don't believe me, go check it yourself. Genesis chapter 1 technically ends in chapter 2, verse 3. In chapter 2 for Genesis technically starts in verse 4. Why they did that, I couldn't tell you. But if you're not reading carefully, you, you can think that verses 1 through 3 in Genesis chapter 2 are actually supposed to be read with the rest of chapter 2. And I say all of this to say that when you're reading your Bible, new chapters do not necessarily mean new ideas, new subjects, or new lines of thought. And so in order for us to understand why chapter 6 leads off the way it does, we need to reread the ending of Romans chapter 5. And this is why I didn't cover verses 20 through 21 on the last episode of Romans 5 because it's so crucial for us to remember the last two verses of Romans 5 to understand where Paul is going in chapter 6. All right, so we're going to start off this reading in Romans chapter 5 verses 20 through 21, and then we're just going to go straight in to chapter 6 from that. And I'll say this right now, uh, if, if you don't do this already while you're listening to this podcast, whip out your Bible, because we're going to be hopping from you know a few verses and referencing them again to try and fully understand what Paul is saying. All right, so Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All right, on to chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Okay, so chapter 5, verse 20, Paul says, The law came in to increase the trespass. This is important for us to understand about the law of Moses. The, the law was like a double-edged sword. It, it truly was. Because on, on one side of the sword, it gave the Israelites guidelines so that they could set themselves apart as God's people ritually, ceremoniously, spiritually, and, and morally. That's great. And it also gave them a very complete picture of God's will, of God's objective morality. There, there was no question as to what God wanted from his creation. And that was great. The law showed us this, and that was awesome. But there's another side to the sword. And the, the downside is that these laws exposed their sinful nature. It exposed their sinful nature. Because in order to follow all the laws, one would have to undoubtedly be perfect. Even just the Ten Commandments, none of us have perfectly followed in our life. And so although the law is great, knowing what God wants of us, knowing how we can live good and moral lives, it also exposes the fact that we are sinful and that we rebel against the very law that God gave us. I like to think of it like this, as to how difficult it was to follow the law, but also how it truly just exposed 
our sins and the sins of the Israelites. Think of it like this. Imagine you lived in a country where there was only one law. One law, that's it. Now imagine you went out and you broke that law. You would now be guilty of just one crime. But now imagine you live in a country that has 10,000 laws and you broke 100 of them because there's so many laws you have to follow. You would now be guilty of 100 crimes. That's how, that's almost how the law of Moses operated. It was great because these laws, if followed perfectly, would lead to a righteous life. But unfortunately, as human beings, we fell short. And the Israelites broke so many of the laws, meaning that they were so guilty, their trespass increased. But Paul informs us that whenever sin is increased, grace abounds. Grace becomes greater than that sin and that trespass. And Paul introduces this crazy revelation that grace is far more powerful than the results of sin. God is always one step ahead. He will never allow his grace to be outmatched by our sin. And knowing all of this, right, if, if you're hearing this for the first time and you are a Jew or a Gentile in Rome and Phoebe is reading you this letter, it would almost seem like the best thing to do then would be to sin even more. Like Phoebe just got done reading the letter from Paul. And she just got done with chapter 5, verses 20 through 21. And you're thinking, oh, dang. Well, I mean, if the more I sin means that God's grace becomes greater, then I should just sin even more because that would glorify God more, right? Like it would show that God is so forgiving and so merciful the more that I sin. So you would think that would glorify God more, right? But this is why I love Paul. My boy Paul anticipates these questions to his arguments like any good thinker would. What Paul does here is what we should be doing anytime we are defending our faith or anytime we're reading something in the Bible and we think that we have um, an understanding of what the text is saying. What we should do is we should take a step back and figure out how we can refute our argument or refute our interpretation. Try and see where we may be flawed in our thinking because all that does is allow us, one, to be chasing after truth instead of chasing after what we want to be correct. But also it fortifies your faith and your belief, knowing that you can withstand and have answers for all the possible attacks for your argument. But this is what Paul does. He anticipates the very question that would come into the mind of these Roman people. And that's what leads us into chapter 6, verse 1. They say, well, are we to continue in sin so that grace can abound? And my boy Paul says, no, 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 no. And his answer is thought-provoking. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who died to sin still live in it? I've came up with a few paraphrases to what Paul says, just because it helped me really understand what Paul was asking them. 
And I hope it helps you as well. So here's a few paraphrases. One would be, how can we who have recognized the destructive and evil nature of sin and have committed our lives to Jesus Christ, the one who died for those sins and justified us before God, how can we still decide to pursue sin that will have an active influence over our lives? Or how can we believe the gospel of Christ and still think it's okay for us to live in sin? Those two things don't go together. Willfully living in sin and also believing in Jesus? James said it the best in James chapter 2, verse 17. He says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Your faith, if it doesn't have the transformative outward expression of what Jesus did on the inside, if we're not seeing that, then your faith is dead. You don't have a a real living faith in Jesus Christ. The two things don't add up. It doesn't mean that you're saved by what you do, but it means that if Jesus has really transformed your life like you claim he has, then you will not be willfully living in sin. So we can ask ourselves this. Back to this question that Paul poses in verse 1. Are we to keep sinning so grace can abound? And, and my thought process was, is oh, if, if I'm these Roman people, I would think that sinning more would glorify God more because his grace would abound more. But what would actually glorify God more? Sinning more against God so his forgiveness can increase? Or, or living my life conforming to the example of Jesus Christ to show that God's power can truly transform me inside and out. I think we can all agree that the latter would glorify God more. So Paul continues in verse 3, he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, if you're like me, When I hear about being baptized into Christ, I automatically think of water baptism here. And I don't know if that's because I grew up in a church tradition that really held water baptism to the same level of belief in Jesus, or if that's if you know if I just always assume that baptism or being baptized means water. But I don't think that this is what Paul wants us to think. I believe he is thinking about a different, more powerful baptism. And don't get me wrong, water baptism is an amazing symbol to help us visualize the more potent and powerful baptism that happens in Christ. And here's where I'm going here. Look at John chapter 1, verse 32 through 33. He says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So what's happening? John the Baptist is baptizing with water. He getting it, dunking heads, getting people wet. He's doing the whole deal. But John saw the Spirit descend on Jesus. And he's told that the one who the Spirit descends on and stays on, that is the one who will baptize. But he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. He'll baptize with the Holy Spirit. So John confirms in his gospel that the baptism into Christ 
is not done by water, but it's done through the Holy Spirit. And water baptism is a symbol of that. And Paul even um, confirms this again in 1 Corinthians 12 through 13. He says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. So even Paul is confirming that when it comes to our salvation in Christ, it's the spirit that we are being baptized with. And we're being baptized into Christ by that. And what's funny is, is that Paul expects the believers in Rome to understand this, to know this. That's why he asked this question in verse 3. He's saying, do y'all not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were also baptized into his death? And Paul expects them to believe this because this is Christianity 101. Paul needs them to understand what is really happening when you give your life to Christ. It's not just something you say. There's an inward inner working of the Holy Spirit that baptizes you into Jesus' death and his resurrection. But Paul is also calling on their understanding of water baptism because water baptism was still a thing that happened. And he's saying, look, this is a symbol of what is really happening when the Holy Spirit baptizes you into Christ Jesus. And he goes on to explain this symbol in verses 4 through 5. And So we're going to continue. He says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's crazy. So here's the deal. Water baptism is the symbol of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So what happens? This is Paul's whole deal because he's trying to explain to us how we are dead to sin. When he says in verse two that we are dead to sin, so how can we still live in it? Paul is now explaining how is it that we are dead to sin. And he says, look, when you are baptized into Christ, you were buried with him in his death and you were also raised from the dead. And that's the symbol that we have with water baptism. You go under in the water, and that represents the death of Christ. And then you come back up from the water, and that represents the resurrection. We are sharing that with Jesus. But Paul is now explaining, how is it that we can be dead to sin and still live in it? And Paul wasn't going to leave them hanging to figure out how they just died to sin somehow, since they never physically died. And he is just saying, hey, after we put our faith in King Jesus, we receive this baptism of the Holy Spirit, and because of that, we gain new life in Jesus. But in order for a new life to occur, the old life must die. And he goes on to explain how this happens in verse 6. Check this out. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. 
So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let's take a look at verse 6 real quick. So let's, let's back up a little bit. When he says body of sin, that in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, some interpret this to mean the material body, like our, our actual physical body. But I don't think that's the case. There's other scholars that believe that when he says body of sin, he, he's meaning it in a corporate enterprise type sense. So instead of it saying body of sin, it would mean like the enterprise of sin or sin as a whole might be brought to nothing. And this isn't too outlandish. I mean, this is the same way that we would say the body of Christ, right? Like the church is the body of Christ. We don't mean that the church is literally Jesus's physical arms and legs, but we are a unified body, a collective, kind of like how we would say a body of water. We don't mean that the water has an actual body, but it's a collective. It's in the sense of an enterprise. So I tend to understand it as meaning that. Because we can also sin apart from our body. If if all that Paul is talking about here is the actual physical body, in order that our physical body might be brought to nothing, it doesn't make sense then how our body is not fully culpable when it comes to sin. I mean, apart from our physical body, you can still lie. You can still speak ill of people. You can still do all those things, and it's not the body per se that's driving you to do that. And I point all of that out because I think it's important for us to truly understand the power of Jesus. Because the enterprise of sin is brought to nothing in our lives. So what Jesus did on the cross completely wipes out the power of sin as a whole so that we would no longer be enslaved to it. That's powerful. And also, I mean, look back at verse 4. It tells us that we have died with Christ. And if Christ died, and he died to sin, so that we no longer are held under the power of sin, then wouldn't that mean that if we died with Christ, we are set free from sin as well? I love that because verse 9 also gives us hope. Look at verse 9. It says that death no longer has dominion over him. Death, death no longer has dominion over Christ. And if that's true for Jesus, then it should follow that since we are united in his resurrection, because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit that we receive when we profess Jesus to be our Lord and Savior, if that's true, then that also means that death no longer has dominion over us. And we're not talking about a physical death. We're talking about a a death as a whole, honestly. We're talking about spiritual death as well. Because of this, we have everlasting life. We are no longer enslaved to death or sin. And then verse 11. Verse 11 is the culmination of his explanation to verse 2. So once again, verse 2, he's saying, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? And everything that he has shared leading up to verse 11, is that culmination of that explanation. So you must also consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's beautiful. Paul lays out, Paul lays out this, this basis theology of what happens internally when we give our life to Christ. 
We are baptized with him in his death and in his resurrection. And because Christ died to sin and he rose from the dead, defeating sin, as long as we are in him, we no longer have to fear sin and death. We are no longer enslaved to sin. We no longer are sentenced to an eternal death because we were baptized with Christ. So in his victory, we share that same victory. On to verse 12. He says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So we're left with the choice. Paul reminds them, and also he reminds us, of our true status and purpose. And that status and purpose is to be God's instruments for righteousness, as any good instrument would do, which would be playing a role. We are meant to be God's instruments for righteousness. And in this beautiful symphony of the grace of God, as it's getting played out, It gets played out when we utilize our newfound life and freedom under King Jesus to be an instrument in this symphony. That's so beautiful. We need to safeguard ourselves to make sure that we are not presenting ourselves for instruments of unrighteousness. It's easy to do. It's so easy to do. But like Paul says in verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions, because you do not answer to the passions of sin. You answer to King Jesus. You are not a servant to sin. You're not a slave to sin. You are a servant to King Jesus. I hope y'all enjoyed this episode of going through Romans chapter six. We're going to hit up the rest of Romans 6 on the next one. And I hope y'all will meet me there. All right. Y'all have a great rest of your day or night or whenever you're listening. All right. Peace out.